This show contains descriptions of violent crimes and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In the early morning hours of December 4th, 1994, three men walks up to the entrance of a nightclub on Stureplan in the central parts of Stockholm and starts shooting. Minutes later, four young people are dead. Over 20 people are injured and many more are mentally scarred for life. The reason for this? The bouncer wouldn't let them in to the nightclub earlier that same evening. Hi, and welcome to True Crime Sweden. I am your host, Pernilla. If you didn't recognize the voice in the disclaimer in the beginning, that voice belongs to Tyler Allen. Tyler and his wife, Beck, does the amazing podcast, The Minds of Madness. If you haven't checked that out yet, be sure to give it a try. I think you will love it as much as I do. And welcome to all new listeners. I'm really glad to have you all here. The numbers are going up all the time, and I'm so grateful to everyone that listens. And if you want to discuss the cases or just hang out with a great bunch of people, please join the True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook. It's a closed group so that your regular non-true crime friends won't see your posts. But just ask to be added, and we will let you in. In the end of the show, there will be mentions to all you wonderful people who took the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. You all wrote such amazing things, and that means so much to me. Thank you. But before I get into today's case, I want to mention that, aside from all the love I get... I also got my first real hate mail. I'm not going to reply to this person who obviously created an email address just to send this email, but I still want to talk a little bit about it here. This message was from someone who had listened to the episode about Tess. You remember the 15-year-old girl who was murdered by a 16-year-old boy and his girlfriend was also convicted for conspiracy to commit murder. This person who emailed me was so upset by me not wanting life sentences for the two perpetrators. He, because I believe it's a he who wrote this message, he wanted them to be sent to death or at least to life in prison. He goes on to say that I'm in my Bleeding Heart podcast failed to mention the public outrage that came in Sweden after the sentencing. Remember, they were only sentenced to 20 months in a youth facility. Well, 
Let me tell you about that public outrage. Of course, there were people here in Sweden who thought the sentencing was too low. But it wasn't a public outrage. More like a sad feeling all around about how this could happen and what we as a society could do to prevent it from happening again. This amazingly intelligent letter writer goes on to say, You quoted some of the United Nations nonsense about child protection laws, despite the fact that these two savages were not children. Well, Mr. Letter Writer, they were children. People are considered adults when they reach the age of 18 in Sweden. This person also says that since you are allowed to drive, you are supposed to be treated as an adult. Well, in Sweden, you have to be 18 to drive, you have to be 18 to vote, and you have to be 18 to drink in a bar. Would that mean that Americans are not grown-ups until they're 21? Because that's the legal age in the US? I don't think so. What you can do at different ages in different countries doesn't say if you're a child or not. He goes on to talk about how I would feel if this happened to my girls and that I would probably change my mind and demand a harsher punishment then. Of course, I would be devastated if something like this happened to one of my loved ones. But I don't think that locking kids up for life is the answer anyway. And I wouldn't spend the rest of my life hating, because that would only eat me up inside. I wouldn't forgive, but I would do anything to forget and to try my very, very best to continue living. He continues to say, All the misplaced, concerned, and seemingly endless compassion and sympathy for the demonic murderers, yet seemingly little such compassion and sympathy for the poor victim and her broken family. What the fuck is wrong with you? Well, let me put it like this. I have a great deal of compassion and empathy for Tess and her family. But I also feel for the other two kids' families. This case is so tragic all the way through. And I don't defend at all what they did. But I find it very sad that two young people could end up doing something so horrific. But still, I don't see that as a reason for locking them up for their entire lives. That's just my opinion. And this guy ends with, I'm done listening to your podcast. And he adds that his, he is actually thinking about going to Sweden to take the matter into his own hands. This is one of the reasons that I think it's so interesting to do this podcast. I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts myself. Most of them are US-based. And I don't always agree on the way the hosts talk about the victims or the perpetrators. And I said in that test episode, I have my view on things because I was born and raised in a country that doesn't put children in prison. 
we don't have the death penalty, and so on. I'm sure that if I was born and raised in a state in the US that has the death penalty, my views might be different from what they are today. I find it interesting to hear what other people's views are, even if they are totally different from mine, because that makes me think about things in a different way, and it also make me try to see the other person's view of it. And that, I believe, is what makes us grow and develop as humans. Well, enough of that, and let's get into today's case about the shootings at Stureplan in Stockholm. This is a case that really affected me on so many levels. Let me start out by telling you why. As I talked about in episode 9 about the mass murders in Falun by Matthias Flink that happened on the same night that I graduated from high school. This case takes place later that same year, in 1994. When the mass murders in Falun took place, I lived in Darlana County, really close to Falun. But as soon as I finished school, I moved back to Stockholm, where I was originally from. So when this takes place, I've been back in Stockholm for about four months. I was working at the head office of a gas station chain called Statoil. They have now changed their name to Circle K, and I guess that is a lot more familiar to you guys. Well, anyway, I had just turned 20 two weeks before this happened. And that meant that I could get into all the nightclubs around Stureplan, which was, and still is, I guess, the place to be when you go out in Stockholm. On this night, Saturday, December 3rd, 1994, me and my friend from work, Karin, was going out to some clubs. We also met up with one of my best friends from Dalarna, Anna, and she brought another girl with her, who was two years younger than us. We met up at my apartment before we were going out to have some drinks and get ready for the night. Karin, my friend from work, called her cousin Kiki to find out what their plans for the night was. I've only met Kiki once before this. She was a couple of years older than us, and a really cool person, and she really knew her way around the area of Stureplan. Kiki and her friends were going to Sture Kompaniet, which was, and I guess still is, one of the coolest places to go to. We were not sure if we would be able to get in there because we had this younger girl with us and she was only 18 and you had to be 20 to get into Sture Kompaniet. So we decided to go to another place called Collage first. They had an age limit of 18 and really cheap beer. So a perfect place to start out. Karin talked to Kiki some more, and we decided to meet up with her and her friends at Sture Kompaniet later that night. These calls all took place before we left home. Remember, this is in 1994, 
and we had no cell phones. We went to collage, drank our cheap beer, danced and had a great time. At about the same time as we were dancing around enjoying ourselves, four men named Tommy Cetrius, Guillermo Marquez Shara, and the two brothers Farsad and Fari Dosti leaves a nightclub called Gino and start heading towards Sture Compagniet. Gino, the nightclub the four men had been at, closed at 3 a.m. But at this time, in 1994, Sture Compagniet and a few other clubs were open until 5 a.m. in the morning. So when Gino closed, a lot of people came to Sture Compagniet to continue to party. There is a large crowd outside Sture Compagniet at this time every Friday and Saturday night, and three extra bouncers started working at 3 a.m. Some of them, who just closed up at Gino's, continued to work at Sture Compagniet after Gino was closed. The four men tried to push their way to the front to get into Sture Compagniet. They even tried to remove the ropes that keeps them from getting in. One of the bouncers, or entrance hosts, as they are also called, he sees this and tells them to stop. He tells them that they have to stand in line as everyone else. This bouncer is named Jocke, and he gets into an argument with the four guys. Another bouncer, Nicke, backs him up and it ends up getting physical, and punches are thrown by both Guillermo Marquez Shara and the bouncer Nicke. The police come to the scene, and Guillermo wants to make a police report about Nicke hitting him. Then Nicke makes one right back at him, because he was the one starting it all. The police officers at the scene takes Guillermo Marquez Shara's name, and they are all asked to leave. Before the four guys left, one of them, no one knows really who it was, yells to the bouncer Nicke that you are going to be dead within 24 hours. It's now about 3.45, and the bouncers doesn't take this threat very serious. They are used to denying people entrance at this hour, because they are too drunk or acting inappropriate or something. And usually people get upset and scream and say things that they don't really mean. But the four guys were really upset about the way they felt that they had been treated by the bouncers. They had disrespected them, they thought. The four guys get into the car they came in. The youngest brother, Fari, is sober and he's the one driving. All the other guys had been drinking that night. One of the guys, Tommy Citrius, has some weapons hidden in a utility room at his brother-in-law's apartment. So the four guys drive out there, asks to get the key to the utility room, and retrieves an AG-3 Norwegian automatic rifle, and goes back out to the car. This apartment is located about 20 to 25 minutes outside of the central parts of Stockholm, and the four guys start to drive back into the city and to the area 
known as Stureplan. The youngest of the brothers, Fadi, is still driving, and he is told by the others to park and wait in the car a few hundred yards away from the nightclub, Sture Kompaniet. The three men, Tommy Citeus, Guillermo Marques Jara, and Farsad Dosti, walks through the beautiful park, Humlegården, that leads up to Sture Kompaniet. Tommy Citeus has the automatic rifle inside his long coat. Remember, this is December in Stockholm and really cold outside. They stop when they get closer and have a good view of the entrance of the nightclub Sture Kompaniet. Most of the crowd outside is now gone. It's almost five o'clock in the morning and the nightclub is about to close. The three men start to walk towards the entrance of Sture Kompaniet. Two of the bouncers see them coming and they are thinking that they are coming back to argue some more or something like that. The thought that they could be armed didn't even cross their minds. When they are about four to five yards from the bouncers, Tommy Citrius takes out the machine gun from underneath his coat and he fires a few shots down on the sidewalk in front of them. One of the shots bounces off the sidewalk and hits a guest in his leg. The first reaction from the bouncers are to run towards Thomas Etreus and try to take the weapon away from him. But then he lifts up the machine gun and starts to fire against them. The bouncers then run towards the entrance door. Klaus is the closest one to the door and he gets inside first. And right after him is the other bouncer, Jocke. Jocke is hit by two bullets to his chest and two bullets to his back as he runs. I have to describe this entrance to you so that you can understand what the scene looked like. This is an old stone building in the central parts of Stockholm. A very beautiful house. The entrance doors are tall double doors, the kind you would see in a mansion. And inside the doors there is an area that is about three to four yards wide and maybe two to three yards in from the door. To the left, right inside the doors, they always had a table and a person sitting there collecting the entrance fee. Directly after this small area, there are stairs. The stairs are about three to four yards wide and maybe about 15 steps up. The whole stairwell is made out of marble stone and very, very beautiful. At this time of night, the stairwell is full of people on their way out. It's almost closing time. Some people are standing there finishing their drinks I remember you always tried to smuggle out your drink if you had one left, but the bouncers always saw you, and you had to stand there and finish the drink before you left, because leaving a half-full drink was out of the question when you were 20 years old. So this stairwell is full of people, 
The bouncers, Klaas and Jocke, came running inside, throwing themselves to the right side inside the entrance to get away from the shooter. Klaas tells in an interview that he kept screaming to people to get down, get away, and so on. Everybody started moving, except for this one girl. Her name was Daniela Josberg, and she was deaf from birth. She didn't hear the shots being fired, and before she could react, she was hit in the head and throat. The people who was there described the chaos. Because this was an old stone building, the sounds of the shooting echoed inside, and the people inside the nightclub thought somebody was shooting inside and started running towards the entrance to get out. The bouncer Klaus describes that the whole stairwell was covered in blood. People were lying everywhere, hurt, bleeding, and some dead. When the shooting started, my friend Karin's cousin Kiki was standing in the stairwell with her friend Steven. She was shot and she died right there. Steven, her friend, was standing a few steps up and he was hit in the hand and in the leg. He did survive, but almost lost his leg and had to go through massive surgery. The bouncer Klaus tells in an interview how he brought people back to the kitchen area to make sure they were safe, and that he then went outside again. When he got outside, he found even more wounded people, and the few minutes before the paramedics came seemed like hours to him. The three men, Tommy Cetreus, Guillermo Marquez Schara, and Farsad Dosti, left the scene and ran back to the getaway car, where Farsad's younger brother, Fadi, was waiting. The police came to the scene shortly after. They are shocked by what they are met by. Wounded and dead people are lying on the street and in the entrance. People later describes that both people at the scene and the police were just walking around in complete shock at first. This is such an unreal scenario to be faced with. The shooting took place at a few minutes after 5 a.m., right as the nightclub were starting to close up. I, myself, left the other nightclub, Collage, at about 4.45 a.m. and took a cab home. The place I was at, Collage, is about 500 yards away from Sture Compagniet where the shooting took place. And because this was before cell phones, social media, and being connected all the time, I had no clue what had happened shortly after I left Sture Plan. The next day, I woke up by the phone ringing. It was my mother. She was frantic and also relieved that I was okay. This is the second time in six months 
that she's desperately calling me in the morning to see if I'm okay after a mass shooting took place. I was a bit hungover, and I didn't really realize the magnitude of this until much later that day when I turned on the TV, and there was an extra newscast about it. At about 5 p.m. that Sunday afternoon, I called my friend Karin's house just to talk about the day before and what had happened at Studeplan and so on. Her mother picked up the phone, and I asked to speak to Karin. And when she came to the phone, I could hear that she was crying. And I asked her what was wrong. She then told me that her cousin, Kiki, was one of the people who were killed in the shootings that morning. I just froze. I couldn't believe what she had just told me. And I guess I couldn't really take it all in. I remember calling telling me that Kiki had borrowed a shirt from her that day, and she was wearing it to the nightclub that night. So in some way, Karin felt that she had been close to her in her last minutes in life. It's still hard for me to talk about this. Even though it's been almost 24 years since this happened, that four young people had to die that night because some guys were denied entrance to a nightclub. And the fact that I could have been one of those people if we had done as we had decided and gone to Studio Compagnie to meet up with Kiki and her friends. But we had so much fun at the other nightclub and that probably saved our lives that day. Let's get back to the events that took place that night. The four men takes off in the car and goes to sleep at a friend's apartment that first night. They realize soon that the police are on to them. Because of the fact that Guillermo Marquez Shara gave his name to the police when he and the bouncers were reporting each other to the police earlier. Tommy Citrius and Guillermo Marquez Shara takes off to find somewhere else to hide. And the two brothers, who doesn't seem to be known by the police yet, they go home. The newspapers publicize the names of Tommy Citrius and Guillermo Marquez Shara, and they also put their pictures on the front page. This is very unusual to do here in Sweden before someone is sentenced for a crime. But these two guys were so dangerous and the police needed help from the public to be able to catch them. The next few days are crazy. The news are reporting every single minute about this, and the police keeps getting tips about their whereabouts all the time. But after three days, a call comes in to the police from a person who in media is only called Momo. He wants the police to pay him for what he knows. But the police say no. He then calls the tabloid paper Aftonbladet with the same story. And they are more than willing to pay him for the shooter's whereabouts. But this Momo person realized that if he doesn't get the police there, they might not be caught and the tabloid won't get any good pictures. So he calls the police again and tells them, 
where they are and what road they are going to go on. The police drive out to set up a roadblock, but on the way there, they are passed by the news vans from the tabloid paper. And shortly after 10 p.m. on December 7th, three days after the murders, Tommy Citrius and Guillermo Marquez Shara are arrested. And the tabloid paper is right there and takes pictures of the arrest. And I can tell you that those pictures are spread all over the news. I don't remember which one of them, but one of the guys got some beating when he was arrested and he had blood all over his face. This person, Momma, who was the one who turned them in, he is shot to death in front of his family 11 years later in 2005. That murder has never been solved, but the police think that it could be related to him turning them in in 1994. When Thomas Citrius and Guillermo Marquez Shara are arrested, it takes about two weeks until the two brothers, Farsad and Fari Dosti, are arrested as well. One of them is charged with assisting murder and the other one with the protection of a felon. At first, all four denies that they had anything to do with the shooting. But after about a month in custody, Tommy Citrius starts talking. He says that the reason he wants to come clean is to give the female victims' families some peace of mind. He doesn't mention the killed bouncer, so his concern doesn't include him, obviously. Tommy Citrius claims that he didn't want to kill anyone, he just wanted to scare the bouncers. And when the first shot was fired into the ground, he didn't realize that a gun was set to automatic fire mode. He also confesses that he was the one who was holding the gun and doing the shooting. The trial starts in April of 1995, about four months after the shooting. A total of ten people are charged in this crime. Some for helping the shooters stay hidden, and some for helping them hide the weapon. One person is also charged with getting rid of the automatic rifle that the police are later able to recover from the bottom of a small lake. The trial ends in June of 1995, and Tommy Citrius is convicted to life in prison for the killing of four people and the wounding of 21 people. Guillermo Marquez Jara is convicted to 10 years in prison for assisting in the murders of four people and assisting in wounding 21 people. The older one of the two brothers, Farsad Dosti, is also convicted to 10 years in prison. The younger brother, Fari, was convicted to two and a half years in prison for driving the getaway car. The rest of the people who were charged are all convicted but their punishments vary between only probation up uh, till four months in prison for
for helping the shooters in different ways after the crime was committed. Guillermo Marquesada was released from prison in December of 2000 after serving two-thirds of his punishment. What I could find about him after that is that he left Sweden and went back to his home country. Tommy Cetrius keeps getting into trouble inside the prison and he is later convicted for possession of drugs, assault, planning of robbery on the outside, and also being connected to illegal weapons on the outside. For these charges, he is convicted to 10 years in prison on top of his life sentence he is already serving. He tries to get his life sentence changed into a fixed number of years several times. And on February 11, 2014, he gets his life sentence turned into 33 years in prison. This means that he could be released on parole in 2016. But the district attorney appeals this, and in September of 2014, the court rules that he should not get his life sentence fixed for 33 years, but that he should stay in prison for life. In March of 2016, he again asks to get the life sentence changed, and he then receives a sentence of 36 years in prison, which would mean he could be out on parole in 2018. This ruling is also appealed by the district attorney, and the court again changes the ruling, and he is still serving his life sentence. In July of 2017, Tommy Citrius was caught when he tried to steal a cell phone out of the pocket of one of his teachers that come into the prison for the education program. He didn't get time added for this incident, but it definitely doesn't bring him any closer to freedom. The four victims that died that morning were all between 21 and 22 years old. Their lives had just begun and they were ended in such a tragic way. The victims were Joakim Jukke Jonsson, he was the bouncer, Kristina Kiki Hossein. That was my friend's cousin. Katinka Jenberg. She worked in a restaurant and she also had a twin sister. And the last victim, Daniela Josberg, the deaf author who worked as a news anchor in public service. My thoughts go out to your friends and families. Still to this day, every year on December 4th, people place candles and roses at the entrance of the nightclub. (music) 
Thank you for listening to this week's episode of True Crime Sweden. Before we get to the fun facts about Sweden, I want to thank my new Patreons. Thank you so much to Anne Bullet, Skiura, Mary Virginia Avery, Scott Quinn, and Lisa. Thank you all so much for supporting the show. And thank you also to all my patrons who keep supporting this show each month. This means so much to me. And I also received some five-star reviews on iTunes. And I want to thank the following people. From Australia. Good Night Mares. Indy 1981. Not a Nerd 99. And from the UK. Wee's Axel. Adolf Pig, Barney4103, and Poor Little Nell. And from Canada, Sonia GT, and Queen of Merlot. And from New Zealand, Nicola, or Nicola, I'm not sure how to pronounce that. VOR45, MG Mouse. And from Sweden, Suvi82 who also wondered why I pronounce my name in an English way when I always pronounce the victims' names in Swedish. That's a really good point there. But I guess it's because I'm so used to being called Pernilla in English when I was in the States, so it kind of stuck with me. But the Swedish pronunciation of my name is Pernilla. Pernilla. Not Pernilla. Well, anyways, thank you for the review. And last but not least, from the US, SWAT Squad, Laura J. McGee, Oruix, PBJ Mom 17, Spatula Girl, Jamie Caruso, Phoebe Sophie, Abbas Navim, I'm a Fun Fan, Jen the Mole, Sweden Cool, Olive and Lexico, Chubby Kicks a Unicorn, Katafem, and finally, Erica, This is Horrible. Well, I don't mean you're horrible, Erica, but that is your handle, Erica, This is Horrible. But she wrote a really nice review, but I love that handle, it's so confusing. Thank you all so much for taking the time to write me. It it means so much to me. I get a summary of all the reviews each month. And if I ever feel low, I just open up that email and let your kind words boost me back to a happy mood again. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And now on to today's fun fact about Sweden. Today I'm going to tell you about Allemansrätten. If you translate that, it means every man's right. This is an old thing here in Sweden, and it means that you have the right to be out in nature almost anywhere. Well, let me explain it a bit. You have the right to walk, bike, ski, or hang out anywhere in the nature as long as you don't destroy anything. Or you should leave it as you found it. 
This means that you can put up a tent for one night, even though the land belongs to someone. Of course, you are not allowed to do this in someone's garden or yard. But if someone owns a large piece of land, including forest, fields and so on, you are allowed to put up a tent and spend one or a few nights there. You just have to leave everything as it was when you came. If the place that you want to put up your tent at is close to a house, you have to ask for permission. But if it is in a secluded area, you are free to stay for a couple of nights without talking to anyone. You are also allowed to pick flowers, berries, mushrooms, and so on in the woods. But of course, you are not allowed to do that in someone's garden. But I guess that goes without saying. When you spend time in our beautiful nature, you should always bring your garbage with you. And be sure not to litter anywhere. So, allemansrätten is not only a right, it comes with some conditions too. You are allowed to have a small fire, like a bonfire, if you are sure that there is no risk that the fire will spread. You are also allowed to swim anywhere, and also stop temporarily with a boat at someone's bridge or pier, as long as it doesn't interfere with the owner's own activities. To me, this is something that I'm so used to, so I don't even reflect on it, really. You can walk into any forest you want and start picking blueberries in the end of July. I always pick a lot of those, and I have them in the freezer for smoothies and stuff. I also love to pick chanterelles in the fall. I love to just walk around in the woods for hours. To be honest, my only fright is that I one day will stumble upon a dead body somewhere. Please don't let that happen to me. So if you ever feel like coming to Sweden during the summer, you can save some hotel money if you bring a tent, and you can enjoy our beautiful Swedish nature. Thank you so much to Carola Gustafsson Hegonius from the True Crime Sweden discussion group on Facebook for giving me this great idea to talk about Allemansrätten. Thank you all so much for listening and I hope to see you next time. Goodbye! Hej då!